our stories are being told. Of late, that phrase has become a rallying cry for minorities of all kinds. Embedded within the histories of any people group are their sense of identity, values, and aspirations. Sadly, those histories are not always told. It isn't surprising then that the people whose histories have been forgotten are those outside of the majority culture. They are the ones who are on the fringe, those who hold the least power and influence. But now that minorities of all colors and creeds have more access to the cultural megaphone, many insist that these forgotten histories be brought back to the forefront of the American conscience. It's been said that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But what happens when history has been forgotten? If cultural histories live on in the people who tell them and embody them, what happens when those storytellers die and their stories die with them? More importantly, how do we bring those histories back into the light? How do we recall what has been lost to time? How do we remember what has been forgotten? All that and more on this edition of Questions from the Pew. Welcome to Questions from the Pew, the intersection of faith and culture. We're your hosts, Rikers Alameda. This is Lucas Manning. With us today is Emmanuel Ricky Padilla. He's been uh, on the show before, friend of the show. Ricky completed his Master's in Systematic Theology from Sorry. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing right now? Yeah, I am an instructor of Bible and Theology at the Moody Bible Institute. I'm the program head of Integrated Ministry Studies. And then I run a ministry called World Outspoken, which focuses on culture making for the church. Great. Cool. cool. Well, yeah, glad to have you on. Yes. Might have a plug later on in the show. Um, but yeah, I guess we're, this, you can kind of think of this episode, uh, I suppose, as a bit of an extension to the Black Panther podcast that mm -hmm. we did in season zero. We need to get a sound bite that's like season zero. <laughs> that's a great idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anytime we reference yeah. a previous. Um, yeah, uh, and I guess uh, what kind of this talk is revolving around is the non-binary nature of the talks of race and ethnicity in America. A lot mm -hmm. of times things can get boiled down to just white and black, um, and some would say that it should, some would say that it shouldn't, and I guess we're here maybe to flesh out the conversation a little bit, um, and I guess, just, I guess engage with, um, I guess, maybe the forgotten voices mm -hmm. in history, the forgotten uh, just histories. Mm -hmm. Um, that have taken place here. Yeah, yeah. I guess a, a first question to start off with is to to ask why does this even matter? Um, clearly, you know, black-white relations are at the forefront of American culture uh, and American conversation at this point. Um, but I guess what purpose does it serve to to broaden that conversation a little bit? Uh, I think is a good place to start. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an important spot for a few reasons. Uh, I was at a conference uh, earlier this year, or I guess last year, during Season Zero, <laughs> where there was a panel discussion among an uh, Asian-American pastor, a 
few Hispanic pastors, African-American guys. It was a, a mix of the, the broad categories. And they asked the same question, why it's important to not just do black-white history or, or even think about diversity in terms of black-white. And it was really interesting that uh, one of the pastors uh, suggested that, no, actually, we need the black-white archetype to start with. I just don't think that's true um, for a number of reasons. One, uh, I think that if we broaden that to think through history, also including a Native American or indigenous indigenous uh, background and keeping that in mind, mm-hmm. one, we're more likely to be empathetic because mm-hmm. it changes the way we view history. Uh, so we're more likely to be empathetic and we're more likely to own the guilt in our own past. I think those are the two mm-hmm. primary reasons that mm-hmm. it's important to think through history from more than one lens. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, not that it shouldn't, but the white black narrative, like the white black issue gets a lot of attention, I would say, whereas maybe some of these other mm-hmm. like top like histories don't ever get talked about. So I guess it's they're blind spots mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to a lot of people. I would say even the most like entrenched white people in Whiteville like know that there's issues or are actively ignoring. Mm-hmm. Sorry, maybe they don't are actively ignoring the issues of like white and black in America. But maybe a lot of people don't know. So like some of the things we're going to talk about, like the Watsonville riots, like I didn't know about that until very recently. And yeah, a lot of these things where it's like, I don't know, I guess just exposing the things that we need to expose so we can address them and move forward. Cause there's no way that we're moving right. forward if yeah. we don't go back yeah. and actually give it some attention. I guess. Or even looking beyond just uh, moving forward, but like, cause history most times is is cyclical right and that only happens because we don't learn from the mistakes of the past and so i mean, guess the hope is that we are able to to see the problems at you know for what they are uh so that way you know in the future when stuff like this happens again we can avoid the mistakes of the past um i mean that might be naive i don't know but i think that's a good goal or a good hope at least yeah for sure at least we have to know to move forward. Yeah. Like whether we do yeah. or not. Yeah. It's a toss up. Hopefully we will. That's what we're trying to do. Woo. That's what it is. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess so. We're talking about forgotten histories. That's the name of the podcast. Mm-hmm. I guess um, it would be helpful to maybe like have some examples of what we're talking about. So I don't know if you. Yeah. Or you. Yeah. Record, you want to share? Yeah. You already brought up the, the riots right. in California. Yeah, right. We could start there, and I'll share something from the, at least the Hispanic perspective briefly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, and I think, yeah, Ricky, you had written a little bit about this, but there, there's that binary of, um, of just thinking about race relations from a black-white sort of vantage point. Um, but so often that forgets and that ignores um, other minorities and other, yeah, the stories of other minorities and other minority groups. So... Um, yeah, one example is the Watsonville riots, and I think this happened in like the 30s, uh, if I'm right. Uh, yeah, so this is pre, pre-World War II era, um, and this was before the big civil rights movement even of, what was it, the 50s and the 60s? 50s and 60s, yeah. that's right, yep. Um, so this happened obviously on the West Coast, but the uh, so f- this is obviously tracing the migration patterns of one particular group of people, so the Filipinos, right? And historically, there have been three waves of immigration within the U- into the U.S. And uh, pre-World War II in the 30s and, and the 20s, uh, that was the first big wave of um, immigration. Um, and 
largely it was going into California, and they took the position of uh, of farm labor, uh, really. Um, as that's often the case, uh, the cheap manual labor went to the immigrants, um, and so the farmers would, you know, white farm owners would hire cheaper labor because it's more beneficial for them um, to the detriment of white workers and laborers. So that was one, uh, you know, one reason why the, the riots started. And then two uh, was just um, the interactions between Filipinos and particularly white women. Um, they, white men all of a sudden got super defensive about quote unquote their women. Um, and that's that whole issue of, what is, what is the term? Uh, miscegenation or something like that. It's like interactions or relations, or like romantic relationships between people of different races. And that was outlawed at that point, right? Yeah. So um, that and a you couple... You say all of a sudden, I don't know. <laughs> if it was all of a sudden, right. Anyway, sorry, oh, yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, white dudes got angry because other people were <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair. <laughs> no, no. But they got angry, and uh, they, uh, yeah, I guess in Watsonville, I guess, was a pretty small town. Um, and so they were saying, like, this, ha- this might happen in L.A., this might happen in bigger cities in California, but we're a small town, and it's not going to happen in our town. So just literally mobs of people went around looking for Filipinos in the camps that they, like the working and labor camps that they, they lived on, and they burned whole camps down. They would hunt down Filipinos at dance, uh, dance clubs, and they'd drag them into the streets and beat them up. Um, and that, yeah, came, came to a head, and uh, they had to, um, I think it was the American Legion of, of that area actually eventually calmed the mob down, but this was after a couple of days of intense rioting and just burning like establishments it's crazy very crazy isn't it true also that the reason filipinos were even in california mm. was because they had banned they had banned japanese or chinese right. migration yeah. but were okay with filipino yeah. Well, migration par- yeah well partly it was because at this point the filipinos were considered u.s nationals right much like um puerto rico Virgin yeah. islands right uh, so they were they were the only asian people group that were allowed to actually migrate to the mainland because the they were they were U.S. protectorates. I yeah, guess they, is, they is were now that they were at that point the model minority, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and so they started coming in, and obviously they didn't have any they didn't have any quotas like they did for other Asian mon- minorities, and so they just came in freely, and then people started freaking out, and uh, yeah, and and stuff like this happened. What a mess! Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to the whole point, like not many people, like you said, Luke, not many people know about this. Um, and it's not obviously to detract from, you know, a very specific converse, conversation between white America and African Americans, right? But at the same time, these stories need to be told as well, even though they were, they were happening on the other end of the country. Right. Well, and they fill in some gaps, right? Mm-hmm. That was, wasn't it until 2011 that California said, mm-hmm. made any yeah, kind of public statement about... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, that's one quick diversion with the 2011 thing. So one that's a little more known is like the Japanese internment camps of World mm-hmm. War II. Um, so obviously we learn about those in school at least. Um, but the crazy thing is like, so they did eventually offer like reparations for that. 
added some numbers here. Essentially, each survivor got $20,000, but that's in 1988. And I guess it's like, I mean, how many, were there a lot of people still alive? You know what I mean? Like how right. many didn't survive? Yeah. And I guess that's the old, it's a adage, I guess, is mm-hmm. like uh, justice delayed is justice denied. Yeah. It's like, how long does it take us to figure out, oh, right. crap, we did something wrong. Yeah. And let's like try to make it right yeah. in some way. Anyway. And some of these people too, I was reading a little bit more into this. After the war, when they were finally released from the internment camps, a lot of them just never moved back to their hometowns because literally they were uprooted and everything they knew was taken away from them, all for the sake of what I found funny was clearly it was a move of move stemming from fear. Right. But uh, one of the sources I was reading was saying that they they spun it as a way to protect. What was it? as a way to protect the Japanese people that were being interned from possible racist activity against them and violence enacted against them because of the, the bombing at Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that's just spinning it so hard. Right. I like how, I don't feel horrible how did that work? Here. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of this. Uh, both of those, the Japanese internment camps, the riots uh, that happened in California, are both West Coast, mostly West Coast, because the right. Japanese internment camps were mostly West Coast mm-hmm. yeah. um, historical events. And I think that that's part of what's important to, to state. When we talk about yeah. these hidden histories, part of what I think is happening is that there is a historical bias for the events that happened in the East Coast. And so people start thinking about race, they start thinking about justice, mm-hmm. and they start thinking about the events of civil war, reconstruction, and mm-hmm. those are all black-white events. Right. But, but we got to remember, at least uh, I'll just read this off here, um, the South only included 11 states at the time, all on the East Coast, um, and the North included 20 states, mostly on the mm-hmm. East Coast. And so our history becomes sort of bent in a way when we start thinking of it with an East Coast bias is what mm-hmm. I tell my students and what yeah. I write about. Uh, when we think of the U.S., we have to have a bigger picture mm-hmm. than, than that East Coast bias, especially if it's going to include indigenous people, if it's going to include Hispanics who are the children of indigenous people, right. if it's going to include Asians who have traveled mm-hmm. into the country. Most have traveled in with a starting point in the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, yeah, I just think that that's an important part of it, uh, especially as it relates to, uh, I, I'm going to pick, I'm not Mexican, but uh, in this way, I think it's important to think about uh, a lot of the Western territories that are now California, Texas, New Mexico, uh, that land obviously at one point belonged to Mexico up until eight, 1848 was finally when they relinquished it. And we forget that overnight when they signed that Treaty of uh, Guadalupe, Overnight, 100,000 Mexicans yeah. became Americans, right. and they were, they were being asked to leave land mm-hmm. that was theirs. Mm-hmm. And so um, th- there's, just, there's just a really important 
um, detail about making sure we think through the West and its relationship to what happened in history because uh, part of what really spurred the Civil War and part of what gave it a little more juice was the fact that Mexico had an anti-slavery law. And when that change was made, part of the reason that America wanted that land, there was, there was already whites that were there. So interesting tidbit of history. Uh, in 1819, uh, there weren't enough Mexicans to cover the entire land. And so Mexicans were allowing immigration from the U.S. into Mexico, which is huh. Texas, California, yeah, those right. states, right? Uh, eventually, they realized, all right, we have, we have a lot of white people coming in. Mm-hmm. We, have to slow, we have to slow this down. Yeah. And so they started slowing that down, and there was a tension between the whites who were moving into Mexico and Mexicans over slaves. Whites oh. wanted to be able to keep their slaves. Mm-hmm. Mexicans had a law against it. Yeah. And so... Uh, part of the history of Mexico really drives their anti-slavery law. We can talk about that if we want. But the the point being, when the U.S. took over that land, there was tension of, are these going to be slave-owning states or not? Mm-hmm. And it generated more steam. It gave more juice to mm-hmm. what would become the Civil War. Yeah. And so, again, mm-hmm. these events inform each other, right? The The events of the West... That happened with indigenous people, that happened with Mexicans, informs what happens to blacks in the South and the Civil War, right? So, again, they're not isolated. They're not isolated events. And we have to take the whole picture of the U.S. if we're going to deal with issues of race and justice. I think think probably the, because you bring up a good point, right? There's historically has been such a focus on the happenings in the East, and that has, for large part, steered the conversation. I think. The one of the big reasons behind that is because the, the East held so many of, I guess, what are now termed as primary cities. So cities like Chicago, for example, well, even people, that then Baltimore, right? Yeah, right. New, New York, York, places like that. And so they were centers of culture making, and that would obviously bleed out into the um, the surrounding areas. Like for, just going back to Chicago, for example, people don't think of Springfield when they think of Illinois; they think of Chicago. Yep or even this tri-state area, right? So, so those big cities primarily sent, clustered in the, in the eastern half of the U.S. drove the culture. And at that point, especially, westward, westward expansion was still a thing, but it wasn't as subtle as the east was now, right? And it was always a struggle to get people um, to move, move out eastwards if they were already established, or move westward, I guess. Um, if they were already established in the East. It was yeah. because of the gold rush. It was because of all this super cheap land that that drove people out there. Normally, they wouldn't. Yeah, totally fair for then. But today, now that we have mm-hmm. the full picture of right. the U.S., and there are significant players in terms of cities mm-hmm. on the West Coast. We've yeah. got L.A., we've got for Houston, sure. right? We have enough of a picture, mm-hmm. and we have enough complexity in a nation of this size mm-hmm that we should think about both sides of both hemispheres of the U.S., if we Mm -hmm. want to call it that, uh, to make sure that we are accounting for all the history that's there. Right. Right. Well, I think part of the problem is just school books. And I guess Mm. this is hinging on my ability to retain my high school history classes. But, I mean, there was so much more emphasis put on, like, the Civil Rights Movement and the Civil War, essentially everything, like you said, East Coast. And then in the West Coast, it's like, yeah, we expanded the Trail of Tears, the Alamo, that's it. That's yeah, it. That's yep. like all that happened. We bought mm-hmm. land. Yeah. And that's about it. It's so I, they're noted victories, right? right they're, not, yeah. they're not noted failures, and maybe that's what right. we need to reconsider. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah, that might just be history yeah. books in general. But, yeah, they definitely have a focus on the East Coast and then, yeah, just the good things that happened. So mm-hmm. I guess... Yeah, just coming from my 
background i think it's good if we just learn like let's just try to learn as much as we can about these histories instead of just you know taking what we have been fed like let's actually get out there i guess as a majority person i think it's our responsibility too anyway two cents well and it's helpful right uh i'm gonna get a little bit into this here but native americans eventually produce children that we call now hispanics right mm-hmm. hispanic that word means the the mix of indigenous people with Spaniard colonizers, right? Latinos like Puerto Ricans, we are Hispanic. We're that mixed group. And we aren't the only mixed people produced out of this history of the U.S., right? Right. Uh, We talk about people being white today because there's such mixing that happened there. There's such mestizaje is the Spanish word Mm -hmm. that the identity is now folded together, right? So you have Irish, Scottish, English, all those things have fed into one another to the point that a new thing was created and we like call the American white the American mm-hmm. white yeah. but just like the uh, Hispanic is a product of what the mixing that happened here right mm-hmm. and so uh, I think if we start thinking of history in that complex way and, mm-hmm. and thinking of West and East what we start seeing is that all of us Hispanics included right our, my ancestors were Spanish colonizers mm-hmm. just as much as they were indigenous people who were under encomiendas, mm-hmm. which is a type right. of slavery, right? So Hispanics have something we call a history of non-innocence. Mm. We've got the oppressed and oppressor mixed into our bloodline, mm. right? And it forces us to think through history right. in a very different way. Um, in Puerto Rico, people aren't clamoring to tear down Christopher Columbus's statue, mm. not because they don't see him as an oppressor, but because he's a great, 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 great grandfather, mm. right? And so... We look at it and say, this this is part of our history. Right. We mm-hmm. are part of the guilty, just as much as we are part of the oppressed. Right. We need both. Uh, mm-hmm. We need both repentance and reconciliation all at once. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that that's part of the reason why this is important, mm-hmm. because there's been such a mixing at this point that no one has a history of innocence. Right. Everyone has a history of non-innocence. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is good. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings... I guess one question I have stemming off from that is is I guess the the idea in my mind of historical amnesia, right? So how much of it is passive, how much of it is is active? Um, because as the progression of time <laughs> keeps going, things will get forgotten um, if they're not dealt with, or some things are actively covered up, or like what you were saying, history is historical events are given a new spin or a different spin yeah um aside from what actually happened um so that active versus passive sort of sort of thing um and i think you see that a lot with so events like i'm gonna go back to the japanese internment right so there, in the two explanations of why that happened there's a very active uh, forgetting of history and a very passive one um passive on the one yeah passive because it's i don't know if people i wouldn't rush to say that people actively don't write this in historical textbooks i think to your point ricky there's just been so much of a focus on the eastern side of the u.s that the other things just you know the events on the west coast just have fallen by the wayside it's a space i mean they're textbooks right they Mm -hmm. have they have a bandwidth they They don't make the cut yep they don't make the cut that's exactly it yeah. yeah, in terms of that uh, passive or active remembrance, there's a, there's a part of me that just says we need to remember well and remember mm. in a healthy way, right? One thing that's interesting about Puerto Rican households, and 
this is pretty common. I don't want to. I don't want to say that it's every single Puerto Rican, but it's pretty common that somewhere in the house there'll be a poster, there'll be a flag, there'll be an image somewhere that, uh, for instance, in my household back home in Florida, my mom had a poster that included the Puerto Rican flag, the island, the island at the bottom, the base of the poster, the Puerto Rican flag over it, and then over top of it, three figures. One was an indigenous woman, a Taina. Mm-hmm. One was an African man, a slave. And the other was a Spaniard colonizer, mm-hmm. dressed in garb that made it clear who was who. And every time we behaved some way that was inappropriate or something, she would say, hey, act like a Puerto Rican, act right. And she'd refer to the three people in that poster. Hmm. And so it's a pretty complex way. It's a tripart history, not binary, right? It says, think about the indigenous people Mm. that this land belonged to, the slaves that were brought here not out of their own will and away from their home, and the oppressors who did the work, right? Right. We are are all of those things. Mm -hmm. And so... I think that that's a healthy act of remembering. It's an active act, to your point of active Mm -hmm. versus passive. I think it forces us to say, okay, what is the history of all three of those bloodlines? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. Well, one thing I, when you were talking earlier, a question I guess I had, is like, so the whole thing of non-innocence is great. But also, like, when we get to here and now, there's like, okay, there's still, like, distinctions and, like... Mm. Uh, I guess injustices because of those distinctions. So like, yeah, like everyone is like, you know, guilty in some manner or has like guilt in their blood, but also at the same time, there's like a difference in how like the outcomes have, you know what I mean? Like how they've come. Yeah, that's true. So I guess it's, it's kind of hard to, well, I think that's a good thing to say for, I guess I think it's a good thing to say for like minorities to be like, yeah, like, you know, we're not all innocent, but it's not a great thing for white people to go around and say, hey, you're part of the problem too. You're not <laughs> totally like, fair. It kind of depends like what the voice, who's saying. Right. Mm-hmm. It, who's saying. Me owning it versus you accusing right. me of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. I get that. No, I, I, that's fair. That, that's one of the concerns when I talk about history of non-innocence with students. That's mm-hmm. one of the concerns that comes up from thoughtful white students to say, mm-hmm. wait a minute, can I, can I say right, that to people? Yeah. <laughs> Which is totally fair, but I, I think it is more a matter of, of self-ownership of right. your own history. Right. I, I right. think that that's the important piece of right. a history of non-innocence. Um, I think it tempers the way that we behave. Yeah, for sure. No, yeah. That makes sense. Though I will say yes. it would be helpful for white folk to adopt the reality that they also have a history of non-innocence, right? Yes. Um, Justo Gonzalez, who I think of the, at least that I know of, the first person to bring up that history of non-innocence idea, mm-hmm. he he brings it up for white people, right? right? He essentially says, you need to come to terms with the fact that your history is a history of non-innocence. Right. Us Latinos, we already know that. <laughs> right. You we have, have posters to... in our houses. Yeah, we have posters <laughs> that have colonizers in our houses. <laughs> we know our history. We know right. our failures. Right. I think it's important for you to get there, right. which is, mm. you know, it's a kind of right. pu- using that to push on someone else, but I think right. in some ways healthy. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's what I think part of the problem is you have all these, you know, rural slash suburban communities that are just entirely white or nearly entirely white. Um, and it's a lot easier to just sit there and interact with anybody. And I've never heard anybody in my life and it's very comfortable. Um, but I guess like if we really don't just want to pay lip service to, you know what I mean? To justice and that kind of thing, then I guess, yeah, it requires us to, like you said, admit our own guilt. Um,
there's a lot of difficulty among majority culture here in America in doing just that thing because of this idea of, again, American exceptionalism. And I think underlying all of this is still the idea of manifest destiny, mm-hmm. where it's like America's gotten to this point because it was divinely, you know, orchestrated so that we could, you know, benefit the world and, and exceptionalism. Whatnot. Yeah. And so I think it's difficult to get out of that mode, even though I wouldn't say that we're active, you know, that America's actively acting on that. Um, but I think it's still undergirding a lot of the way we think, the way we, the way we vote, the way we interact with other minorities. So it makes that, that endeavor of owning up to, you know, uh, owning up to your own culpability and the things of the past, that makes it a little bit more, more difficult. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure how we, how we change mm-hmm. that. I mean, we part of it is changing the history, right? Telling mm-hmm. a thicker story. Right, but right. I, I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure how we, how we help yeah. or encourage the adoption of a history of non-innocence mm-hmm. right. for people who are saying, I had nothing to do with that. I guess the only thing I know to do is just like keep putting it in people's faces. Like, hey, mm-hmm. like, no, this is actually a thing. You know what I mean? And eventually yeah. it gets in. Maybe, you know, the generation above me won't ever get it. But like, I guess, uh, I think Tyler Perry was once at the leadership summit and he was, he was talking to Bill Hybels, which that's a different thing, but uh, essentially saying like, it's not like this generation isn't going to change, but the next generation might change a bit and the mm-hmm. next generation might change a bit. And I guess that's, we want these problems to be solved in mm-hmm. five years. But right. when you, when it's a history of hundreds of years of oppression and like, not even like no regret whatsoever by those people, you know what I mean? Up until today, I don't, I think it'll just take time, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> consistency. Sorry. <laughs> no, oh, I was going to say like, and I think that's why the whole, the whole idea of representation in media is such a big deal, right? Because, yeah. you know, media determines so much of, of what we view as a culture. And so that's why movies like Crazy Rich Asians or Black Panther, yeah. that's why they make headlines. That's why they're such a big deal, particularly among minorities, because all of a sudden they're able to tell their own stories for what they are. Now, with movies like... Um, I don't. I'm. I'm just thinking about the the classic civil rights movies that still paint that still portray the 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 racial binary that we were talking about, right? So one movie in particular. The Blind Side. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> The Blind Side is a good is a very blatant the example. The football movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. The white lady yeah. adopts, yeah. adopts <laughs> the black kid and, like, and saves I'm it. I'm pretty sure. I can't remember for sure, but I'm pretty sure the football players come out and been like, "That's not." <laughs> <laughs> or even be like stepping back from that. If we want to step back still into like this whole civil rights movement is race the movie about jesse owens Mm -hmm. going to germany who at the end of the movie he thanks his white trainer interesting it's it was going so well up to that point and then all of a sudden they turn back around it's almost like a grasping for yeah for that for that rescue mentality it's like reinterpreting history so obviously he did something great so it's like oh but who is really right was really supporting him you know what i mean like the movie still could have made its point and could have been impactful without that little snippet. Absolutely. Yeah, so in that sense, maybe it is the stories we tell and the way that they shape 
the culture mm-hmm. and the identity that we take. I do think we need a, an identity that draws us together both into a history of non-innocence mm. and into a kind of union, right? Something something right. that is much more of a, hey, we've got to work on this together. Um, obviously, my bias is, I think, mestizaje, that Spanish word, the, the mixed identity, yeah. is the way to go, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not color-oriented, and it's strictly a word that is related to the events that happened here, right? Mm-hmm. Mestizaje has to do with Spaniards mixing with indigenous people here, white folks sleeping with right. indigenous women mm-hmm. creating these children, right? So I think if all of us had a kind of mestizaje identity, mm. I think we'd be more inclined to say, hey, we're one group that has to figure out our, our non-innocent history. Mm-hmm. Right. Because um, well, neither of us are those people. Because, right, right. Yeah. right. Neither of us neither of us are innocent, mm-hmm. but, but right. we have issues between us mm-hmm. that we have to resolve because we are still one people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, that's, I mean, we have kind of talked about this a little bit, but it's like a bigger conversation of like, uh, like national identity, like what yeah. is an American mm-hmm. and how do we, yeah, I guess like what makes an American? <laughs> Cause yeah. it seems like there's ideas that are polar opposites from one another. Yeah. And so that's like where you get the differences, right? And yeah. the tension. Well, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt or something. He, um, he wrote this in some speech or some address or something, but he was talking about like, um, the idea of this ideal immigrant, like America is a nation of immigrants, but then he listed these qualities like they're willing, essentially the, the tone of the, of his, his speech or whatever it was, was that immigrants, if they want to come to America need to lay down their cultural identities mm. and assume an American cultural identity. Well, that's the melting pot. Yeah, that's right. I was just going to say. Yeah. 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 In Chicago, the 1909 plan for how mm. the city was going to be built, the first paragraph says that one of the objectives of the plan is to ensure proper assimilation of the immigrants showing up. Dang, that's crazy. That's, it, it's in the first paragraph of the plan. Like, this is a stated, This is what we're here to do goal. with this city. Right. We are here to build a city that is going to be a very clear and easy on-ramp to becoming American. Mm-hmm. And by that, they mean very specific set of right. cultural values and not the retention of your previous mm-hmm. ones, right. right? And so... Uh, to your point, it's manifest destiny. Yeah. It, it's a lot. And that's of those an example things. of very active, of very forgetting it, of history. Yeah. Well, and it's right. interesting, right? The 1909 plan in Chicago, they thought they were doing good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were convinced mm-hmm. that this was the most helpful thing that they could provide mm-hmm. to an immigrant. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's there's an existing blindness then that affects our blindness today. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, if you ask Daniel Burnham, he was convinced that that was the best way to treat immigrants. Hmm. One thing that we can learn from our northern brothers up there in the old great country of Canada. Yeah, God bless them. God bless them. So we, like you said, we talk about like the American melting pot, but in Canada they have the Canadian mosaic, hmm. which essentially means you we're each, you know, we maintain our distinct cultural values and identity in the little pieces of a mosaic, but it all comes together to f- form like a beautiful image. And I guess I we sat around a little bit trying to think of another word for mosaic that America could use, and we have no ideas. Hmm. I don't know. If you have an idea, please let us know. Yeah, I don't have one. I, still <laughs> I said think salad bowl, which is the most uninspiring thing I've ever heard. I'm the lettuce. Yeah, I want to be a part tomato. of the salad bowl. <laughs> what kind of salad would we be if we were the Caesar American salad, salad bowl? Caesar, Caesar salad. salad. We're the boring empire. salad. We're the empire. Oh, Caesar salad because we're the empire. Also, Clever. I love I love Caesar salad. <laughs> the most boring salad. Whoa! Possible. 
I don't know about that. I'm the next episode. episode will be food reviews. Discussions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what salad best fits the church? Anyway, we have derailed. But all that to say, I mean, it's hard, especially now, as of how polarized everything is. But man, I feel like there's got to be some sort of vision, and maybe if the church catches it, uh, of just a better national identity. Um, I mean, I just think that's what we need. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, if we wanted to, if we want to take a theological spin on this, right? It's the, it's the task of the church to mirror that. Um, if we want a mosaic ideal, then that should be very clear in the church. And we have images for that, right? Yeah. The the body image still provides distinction mm-hmm. for each body part. Yeah. Right. Uh, constantly when we talk about the unity of the church in the New Testament, we mm-hmm. talk about the unity with different gifts between people, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have images and metaphors mm-hmm. in Scripture that drive the church to a kind of yeah. union mm-hmm. that still mm-hmm. accounts for distinction. Yeah. Unity and diversity. Yeah. Particularly helpful, I think, is, I don't even remember what what passage it is, but I think Paul talks about how when one part of the body is hurt, other parts of the body feel that pain as well. Mm-hmm. I think especially in this conversation, that is really, that is needed Absolutely. because it's so easy to blame the other so that way you're not culpable of, you know, whatever sins of the past, sins of the current situation, whatever that may be. Um, we want to relinquish all guilt as much as we can, but the church isn't, the church isn't called to do that. Um, and that's not helpful even if, at a societal level. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. It's the whole idea of, you know, the eye saying to the hand, I don't need you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you're hurting or if you think something was done that was wrong, mm-hmm. bye, Felicia. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't need you, right? Like, that's not that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and maybe in that sense, well, not maybe. I do think the church can lead the way in terms mm-hmm. of expressing this kind of unity, and it is a reflection of the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. It's part of our bearing witness to a fragmented country, uh, or at least perceived fragmentation in the country some might debate that but um, i think of fragmentation in the country i think the church can reflect the kind of unity the kind of here i go again with that word (laughs) mestizaje right that kind of mixing Mm -hmm. that is both healthy it's mosaic in the Mm. sense that it keeps that difference Mm. but is actually one in spirit that Mm -hmm. whole idea of ephesians 4 Mm. i think that's well said yeah i think it's a good note to to end on running out of time (laughs) (laughs) But, okay. uh, yeah, Ricky. Thanks uh, again. Thanks for joining us. Um, is there uh, is there a place where listeners can find about find out about more of your thoughts, read some of your work? Yeah, if you go to worldoutspoken.com, world like the globe, W R O R L D, worldoutspoken.com. Uh, there's articles there that talk directly to this issue, speak directly to this issue about the racial binary. There's actually two of them. And then there's several other articles related to issues of justice, equality, the church, theology. So check it out there. There's also a podcast for us. And so you can check out our episodes as well. That's great. Well, thanks for being here. Thank you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, to you, our, our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, as, uh, as always, please rate, comment, ask questions, subscribe if you haven't uh, been subscribed already. Uh, but yeah, this has been Questions from the Few. I'm Riker Zalameta. This is Lucas Manning. We'll see you next time. Bye.